Hello, and welcome to All Things Disability, a podcast from Northeast Arc. My name is Joanne Simons, and I'm the President and CEO. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Stephen Perlman. I've known Steve for years. In fact, uh, I probably won't tell you how many. And today, I'm thrilled to speak to him about his work providing critical care to children and adults with disabilities. My life changed like 29 years ago when I caught a call from Eunice Kennedy Shriver to treat her sister, Rosemary Kennedy. And Rosemary had some terrible and severe dental problems and needed a dressing. And interesting that the family sought a pediatric dentist uh, 2,500 miles away to treat a 63-year-old woman. But it was in the, in, that's just the indicative of the problems of health care and especially dental care in people with intellectual disabilities. Steve is clinical professor of pediatric dentistry at the Boston University Goldman School of Dental Medicine. He is also the adjunct professor of pediatric dentistry at the University of Pennsylvania. He is a fellow of the American Academy of Dentistry for Persons with Disabilities and is recipient of the Academy's Harold Burke Award in recognition of his lifetime achievement in caring for people with disabilities. He is also most proud of being co-founder of the American Academy of Developmental Medicine and Dentistry. Steve is well known for founding Special Olympics Special Smiles, an oral health initiative that offers free and sometimes life-saving dental screenings to athletes worldwide. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joanne. It's a pleasure. And like you said, we go back many, many years and in the fight to uh, improve quality of life and, and most important, health care for people with intellectual and neurodevelopmental disabilities. Steve, I want to start broadly when it comes to health care and particularly dental care for people with disabilities. Can you just set the stage for our audience and explain some of the barriers for people with disabilities that they may face when accessing care? So of all the um, aspects in health, well, let me tell you a little how I changed, how my career path changed and, uh, and led to where I am today and give you a little bit of the history. So I had been in private practice and teaching and an old school by profession. I'm a pediatric dentist. My practice was limited to children, adolescents, and people with disabilities. And um, my life changed like 29 years ago when I caught a call from Eunice Kennedy Shriver to treat her sister, Rosemary Kennedy, who was the famous Kennedy sibling with an intellectual disabilities. And Rosemary had some um, uh, terrible and severe dental problems and needed a dressing. And interesting that the family sought a pediatric dentist uh, 2,500 miles away to treat a 63-year-old woman. But it was in the, in, that's just the indicative of the problems of health care and especially dental care in people with intellectual disabilities. So based upon my successful treatment of Rosemary Kennedy, uh, Eunice invited me to Washington to talk about dental care for people with intellectual disabilities. And, and it was an amazing experience for me because here I was face-to-face -face with Eunice Kennedy Shriver, the, the most prominent figure of, health, of 
uh, improving quality of life of people with ID, uh, the founder of Special Olympics, which she is most known for. But also in the room was her husband, Sergeant Shriver, an amazing American hero. And the third person was Dr. Robert Cook, who was the medical director of Special Olympics at the time, 29 years ago, but the founder of developmental pediatrics in the country. Uh, we credit Bob Cook with, with founding. He was At that time, he was the head of uh, pediatrics at Hopkins, John Hopkins Medical School. So Mrs. Shriver, based on her sister's problems, Mrs. Shriver said, okay, Steve, you have uh, two hours to talk to me about dental care for people with intellectual disabilities. And I said, Mr. Shriver, I don't want to talk about dental care. I want to talk about health care for people with ID. And here the, the world's champion says to me, what are you talking about? They get as good or better health care than the neurotypical population. And I said, Mr. Shriver, I, I can't believe that he's telling me that. And she said to me, you know, I've dedicated my whole career to improving the quality of life for people with ID. And I thought in order for them to succeed, I fought for education first and the highest education that they could achieve. Then it's like, what are they going to do when they grow up? Because everybody wants to feel valued. So I fought for job opportunities. And then the third thing was with the closure of our institutions, I thought about safe housing. I've never thought about their health. I thought it was as good or better than the neurotypical population. And I, I challenged her on that. And Bob Cook, uh, Dr. Cook agreed with me, and he said, yes, Mrs. Shriver, they have the worst health care. So she um, looked at me and challenged me and said, I want you to bring health care for people with ID all over the world. And so I said to her, if she would let me use Special Olympics as a soapbox, I would try and do it. And so that led to me forming the Healthy Athlete Program and the Special Smiles program in particular. And I'm proud to say that it's the largest public health program in the world addressing health disparities for people with intellectual disabilities. And we've used that program to capture much of the information because, as you know, you know the, the federal government, all the governments of the world, don't even know how many births there are with Down syndrome or spina bifida. But number one, they don't know, they don't follow the people, so they don't know the secondary conditions, the comorbidities, and the problems that people with intellectual disabilities face. And for example, with autism today, which is one in 54 children in the United States. They have no idea because the diagnosis isn't made until later. So the program in Special Olympics gives us a snapshot of the health problems that people with intellectual disabilities face throughout the lifespan. And that led this this founding of the Healthy Athletes Program. I realized that Special Olympics could only, you know, we only had eight health disciplines. And so I know I knew that I needed an army of healthcare professionals to help with all the issues that take place, whether it's denial organ transplant, whether it's denied access to specific, there's so many problems that parents and caregivers face. So it led me to co-found the American Academy of Developmental Medicine and Dentistry, which is now the leading organization the go-to organization, and um, because it's multidisciplinary, and it, it, and whereas the American Academy of Neurology or the American Academy of Cardiology, these bureaucratic organizations are so um, committee-centered that they never have time to react to the fast decisions that have to be made regarding families in the country. For example, if a child is denied an, or an organ transplant and needs it soon, 
the bureaucracy can't tackle those problems, but a, a renegade bunch of pirates that are experts in the field can handle it for families. So I'm most proud of the accomplishments that we've been able to do. For example, during COVID, we were the first uh, group that came forward with the uh, use of, we knew if there was a shortage of ventilators, who would be the, the population that gets denied them? Patients with intellectual disabilities. Uh, hospital visitation rights, when nobody could visit some, go up in, in the hospital with somebody. We came up with a policy, end-of-life decisions, uh, physician decision-making. So if you go to the ADMD website, there are many um, public policy statements that we've made. And we, we're really, it's amazing the accomplishments that, that, that we've done. Thank you, Steve. You have laid more than uh, the groundwork for uh, the improvements for people with disabilities. It's, it's remarkable to hear you retell the story, which, of course, I've heard before, but I'm always in awe of what you've been able to accomplish in the last few decades. Um, and I love the renegade pirate. Um, and um, it, it's true that the bureaucracies have really stymied our efforts to make progress, but you and your army of um, incredibly dedicated um, professionals and family members have really changed the world. And, and you know, it's personal to me. I have a son with Down syndrome, and during COVID, he actually got COVID, and uh, I had to leave him outside of the emergency room at a prominent Boston hospital because there were no visitors. However, I have to tell you that I looked at it slightly differently after my tear wiped away my tears to realize that maybe what they saw was a competent person who happened to have Down syndrome who would be able to communicate effectively with his caregivers uh, and that our fight for inclusion had some success um, and it turned out well for him. But Tell me if you have a couple examples of some of the effects of the lack of access to care. I mean, you talked about, I know how prominently you were involved in overturning a decision for a young woman to receive a heart transplant who happened to have Down syndrome. But are there other cases that, that stand out? Oh, yes. Uh, there was a, a child in New Jersey, a three-year-old uh, child with uh, Wolf-Hirschhorn disease, and terminal kidney failure, and uh, the parents, both school teachers, CHOP, number one, and along with Boston Children's, always the best-ranked children's hospital in the country. Uh, the child was told by the specialist that she had six months, the parents were told that their daughter had six months of a year to live, and uh, they went to meet the transplant team, and the Head of the, they walked into a room at, at Children's Hospital with lawyers and, and uh, social workers and, and, uh, and an entire team. And the head of the transplant team looked at the parents in the eyes and said, yes, your child needs this transplant to live. Uh, but the transplant team deems that her intellectual functioning is low and they didn't want to waste the time of the transplant team on giving the daughter this life-saving operation, even though the mother was the kidney donor. And so um, the parents walked out of the room. Of course, they'd never heard anything else that anybody had to say. They just walked out of the room, and then they said, how can this be happening in this country today? And so somebody went on a blog. They contacted me and said, Steve, what are you going to do about this? And I mobilized my troops, and within two weeks— we had a position paper in front of the Ethics Committee of Children's Hospital that not merely organs were being transplanted, but the dignity that and the quality and everything that goes along with it. 
and they reversed the decision. The child got the kidney. Um, she's now a loving member of the family, thriving. The mother brought her daughter to our annual ADMD meeting and made a speech about how, thanks to us, instead of she would be visiting her daughter's grave today. So um, a law was passed shortly thereafter in the state of New Jersey that no nobody could be denied an organ transplant based on their intellectual functioning. So these are the things that I'm most proud about. But there's not a day in my life that I don't hear another story from another parent, another caregiver. And, you know, Joanne, I, I brought up the point that dental care is the most unmet health care need for this population. And for historically, for 45 years, I've heard that it's the lack of training that it, they get in dental school, hygiene school, the lack of training and the lack of reimbursement. But and it is those that are huge barriers, but there's so much more. It's stigma. It's like, you know, oh, this po this population isn't worth it. You know, I'm a cosmetic dentist or I'm an aesthetic dentist, and, and they don't appreciate anything. Uh, you know, the communication problems, then that's any healthcare professional. A lot of times the failure and the inability to somebody uh, communicate, you know, uh, they're often brought, in, brought into a visit by a third party and, you know, they, everybody's busy. Uh, certainly with healthcare physicians are over the top with their electronic medical records and everything. So when somebody presents a communication barrier, it just adds so much more time to the uh, uh, the visit, uh, you know, the problem with direct support per personnel, you know, we were ever the whole field relies on the quality and the and the um, abilities of direct support personnel. But look at the profession. It's it's 80 percent turnover a year all, all the time. So the problems of DSPs, the follow of the insurance companies and Medicaid not not allowing follow up care. Uh, the transitioning, no matter what you are, you are in, the, from the pediatric world to the adult world. You know, I've been to pediatric cardiology meetings, pediatric neurology meetings, pediatric dentistry meetings. The, the transition, you know, the adult neurologists, adult neurologists treat strokes, seizures, and uh, migraines, and the pediatric neurologists treat entirely different things. So the transitioning is terrible. Uh, now, when you go into a hospital, uh, you're treated by a hospitalist, and they have the least training about people with intellectual disabilities. So what are we seeing? Hospital admissions with our population, and they're either discharged too early without an adequate di diagnosis, or uh, they stay in the hospital forever for a condition that's easily treated. Uh, the culture, the culture of an institution. You know, if a dean of a school is it, special needs isn't on his radar screen, the students are just not going to get the education. Uh, crazy regulations. Uh, I could tell you innumerable stories uh, with regulations, like putting sunblock. People in Tennessee, weren't clients in group homes weren't going out on the weekends because you had to be a nurse to apply sunblock. And no, the agencies didn't want to pay time and a half uh, or overtime. And uh, and then another huge thing is the accountability. It's like, and that that uh, that's a huge barrier is who is the guardianship, consent, the issues with, I've had nightmare stories myself in my practice that I couldn't, you couldn't even believe uh, what was, what the problems uh, in ownership. And uh, 
and so on and so on. So those are the real social role valorization. You know, in in many parts of the world, people with ID are viewed upon as menaces or uh, burdens on society. Why should we have to support them uh, for the rest of their life? And look at the client. Look at what's going on today in Iceland and Finland with Down syndrome. I mean, these are perfect examples of social role valorization. Steve, you've made so many very important points in the story that you talked about uh, where a child was being denied a transplant, where the mother was going to be the donor, um, you know, shook me to my core because I could not imagine that those things were still happening. Except I shouldn't be surprised because people with intellectual disabilities have the lowest health status of anybody in the world. They're nine times more likely to be sexually abused. They're the most underemployed people in the, in the country. They're among the poorest in the country. And yet, um, in our current conversation about you know, race, equity, and inclusion, we're sometimes not part of the conversation, even though the word inclusion actually came from the disability world. It came from special education. So I think the stories you tell um, and the statistics you share with us are important for us to remember in this conversation that people with disabilities need to be part of every conversation. I want to talk a little about medically underserved population because this is something that I think that we really need to work on. And it's interesting that the bill has been introduced by Congressman Moulton, who's our congressman, correct? He is our congressman. Exactly. For those of you listening from somewhere other than Massachusetts, we are very fortunate to have uh, Congressman Moulton, Seth Moulton, as part of our legislative delegation. So we realized that uh, this was very important, and we came to our awareness about 20 years ago because we're looking at ways to increase access to care within this population. And one of the ways is loan repayment. So if a population is designated as a medically underserved population, that means that any professional, medicine, dentistry, nursing, pharmacy, uh, can get loan repayment. And with a rising cost of, of uh, education for healthcare professionals, loan repayment is really a critical issue. But it also involves research and um, education. So those three things are very important. So right now, so basically a physician colleague decided that he didn't want to work in an African-American, Native American health center, Hispanic. He wanted to work with people with ID. He went to the apply for loan repayment and he saw that people with ID are not declared a medically underserved population in the eyes of the federal government. So he said, okay, Look that the government has a formula for declaring a population medically underserved. It's based on mortality, morbidity, uh, poverty level, and access to primary care medicine. When we plug in the numbers for people with ID, they fall way below the other uh, ethnic groups. So we thought it was an easy fix. The government's formula, we fit all the criteria, and yet, it's been a 20-year battle to try and get this fixed. The government refuses to designate people with intellectual disability a medically underserved population. So a few years ago, Congressman Moulton brought up the Heads Up Act, 
which is sitting in Congress right now. Is there, uh, Steve, is there something that our listeners can do to help move this legislation? Absolutely. They can, con- they can contact Congressman Moulton and say that we need to and, and show that there's a groundswell of support for this. It was introduced by him and Harper, bipartisan. The bill is called the Heads Up Act, and we'll provide a link to the bill so that you can have information so that you can not only contact Congressman Moulton and your own representative to push this forward. Um, Steve, I'm so glad you talked about access to health care because it's remarkable that it's taking more than 20 years to get something so important, so visible, and so apparent passed in the bureaucracy. I'd, I'd like to, and another point on this, Joanne, is I think one of the reasons is because the gross underreporting, and this is important for every congressman, because if they know how many people in their, in their district that they represent, I think it'll change their attitude. So we always talk about, and you and your work with the uh, ARC and stuff, we always talk about a population of 52, 54 million people with disabilities in the country, big D. But when we look at intellectual disability, we, the, the government has always, always reported around 7.5 million is the number generally people use. But we have recently spent a lot of time that it's not that number. It's almost 15 million people with intellectual disabilities. And I've got the documentation for this because, number one, children under the age of five the government lists 155,000 because they're only looking at deaf and blind. Under five, deaf and blind. Other disability, not counting autism and ADHD of people. And now we're looking at almost 20% of uh, teenagers are taking and, and youth are taking medication for ID. So working with the Institute for Exceptional Care and a physician, May, M-A-I, FON, P-H-A-N, She's been, we, we're working at changing uh, those numbers because that makes a significant difference in lobbying, uh, seven and a half million. The other pushback, I have to point out that, and this is surprising, but the other pushback is coming from the big world of disability. They resent people with ID being carved out as a unique population for benefits. They want benefits similar. And so for the government looking at a population of 10 million as opposed to 52 million, it really makes a huge difference. But along the point, the other point I forgot to make was along with loan repayment, like I said, it's money. So f- schools can do hire faculty. They can build special care clinics and they can incorporate and spend time on curriculum development also with the medically underserved designation. And right now, for example, if you want to uh, do research in like sickle cell anemia uh, in in African-Americans, there's plenty of money for that research. If you want to study fetal alcohol in Native Americans, plenty of money for that research. A critical issue, you want to study aging and dementia and Alzheimer's and people with Down syndrome, no, they're not a medically underserved population, so there's no money for research for that. We have a lot of work to do, Steve, and I know that you're up for the task, and um, I'm, I'm happy to be one of your soldiers. But uh, I want to talk now. You have a new and even greater opportunity to change lives. Uh, tell us about your new role 
um, because I know retirement is not in your uh, uh, language. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so I, uh, as of July 1st, I, I became uh, president of an, a, a nonprofit called Project Accessible Oral Health, and it basically has anything to do with the systemic, you know, the, the, the oral, oral health involves so much more than teeth and gums. It, it involves nutrition. It involves swallowing, feeding, breathing, uh, people with craniofacial deformities. Uh, so tackling, as president of Project Accessible Oral Health, my job, my new job is to work with schools, uh, both in medical and dental education, nursing, to increase um, access to care, to provide education for health professionals, like working on curriculum development, and to incorporate the worlds of OT, PT, uh, speech and language. I mean, the, you know, at, at your, your programs at ARC are so inclusive. Um, and uh, it's, there's no population that is more reliant on the healthcare team than this population. And so, and that's what's lacking because medicine is often so siloed and even all the health professions are siloed. PAOH is going to act as a convener to bring all the disciplines into the, you know, using oral health as a platform to promote total health. You know, I just, you brought up the violence and abuse. I just got a, a paper from Australia the other day that 90% of women with autism have had sexual abuse at some time in their lifetime. 90%. We have to do work on healthcare professionals' awareness of sexual abuse and neglect and also, males are just as uh, susceptible in this population as females for both domestic violence and um, sexual violence. Well, I thought we were going to talk about um, some progress, so I still want to get to that. <laughs> but I know that there are a lot of challenges that lay ahead for this this yeah. group of people who okay. we have dedicated our lives to. So I can tell talk you about a, big, a little bit of progress. I can talk to you about a giant win, okay? So for my whole career, uh, as I said, dentistry is the most inaccessible and unobtainable healthcare need for people with intellectual disabilities. So uh, years ago, I testified, and, and I talked about the barriers to care, and I talked about the reasons, you know, pre predominantly lack of education and reimbursement. So years ago, I testified, I was able to testify before the President's Committee for People with Intellectual Disabilities and found a, a, a gentleman who decided to become a champion. And I'm proud to say it's Jim Brett from the Boston area. And Jim Brett is an incredible human being who at that time was president of the President's Committee. And Jim was a, Jim heard, heard us and he listened to us. And so in his new role, he left, but he, even then, he couldn't move the bar for us. But then he moved to a bigger position of power in the country on the National Council on Disability. And he called me up and says, Steve, I think now with my new role, I think we can help fix your problem. And so we were always, um, I, I didn't know how to navigate this and the frustration you'd think. So early on, we realized that in the, for example, the dental school curriculum, 
The dental school curriculum had nothing in it about educating dental professionals about patients with special needs. We thought that was an error by it was an error and it was omitted. So we petitioned the council to change curriculum requirements. First year we proposed it, we defeated terribly. Second year again. Third year, we said, what's going on? And the schools basically said, we don't have the faculty to teach it, and we can't make any money on the patients. So they settled on diagnosis and treatment planning only, which meant that a dental professional could graduate school without any hands-on experience or clinical training. And so that existed, and we fought it consistently. And Jim Brad finally, he said, I got an idea. So the attorneys for the National Council on Disabilities, indicted the dental profession for lack of access to care and got them a simple fix, but only the lawyers could have done it. So previously, the code of ethics of the dental profession said that a dentist could not treat a patient, not refuse to treat a patient because of age, gender, sexual orientation, yada, yada, and that was it. So the paranoid caregiver would call up and say, I have a 30-year-old son with cerebral palsy or whatever it was. The answer was always, I never got any training in dental school. I don't feel competent doing good luck trying to find somebody. They got the American Dental Association to insert the word disability in the code of ethics of the dental profession. That simple addition of one word opened up everything that we needed to get done because now schools had to train competency, not only diagnostic and treating. So I have to say that's been the one of the biggest, but it shows that ag- advocacy can work. You just have to find the right people. And of course, you have to have the documentation that, that proves the point that you're um, you're trying to get. So Jim Brett is my hero in, in actually fixing. So we want, Jim Brett's one of our heroes as well, and he is president and CEO of the New England Council. And in May of this year, President Joe Biden appointed him to serve as the chair of the President's Committee for People with Intellectual Disabilities. And I am uh, also honored to say that Jim Brett is a member of the advisory board of the Northeast Arc and a lifelong champion of people with disabilities. And um, you'll be hearing from him on all things disability as well. So Steve, I, I spent uh, many hours in your waiting room. And one of the things that I noticed and I know about you, um, in addition, because you cared f- for my children's dental needs, was that you were an inclusive practice. The children that came to your practice were speaking many languages in an urban city. They were most often receiving public assistance for their health, for their health care. You were often well, uh, un- you were reimbursed at levels that would, that most dentists walked away from. What made it that you opened, you wanted your practice to be a practice that didn't turn away any child, regardless of the language they spoke, their disability, their economic level, and was there a moment or was there a time or were some examples that, or were you always just an, an amazing, marvelous human being? No, no, no. I think it, you know, something like you, people say to me all the time, like, oh, do you have a family member or anything like that? But, uh, you know, it, it, it's, uh, exper- you know, what are we, uh, we're uh, 
uh, we're a person based on our life experiences. You know, like with people with problems now, the big buzzword is ACE. You know, your your being is adverse childhood experiences that you have. And so for me, the turning point in my life was um, when I took a job in, in uh, when I was a junior in college, uh, and that was a long, long time ago. Um, I took a job in in my uh, in the Department of Psychology, and my job was to find at those. This is, goes back to 1966. So this was a long time ago when I was a junior. College. And my job was to find work for the homebound worker with a disability. Uh, George Washington University, where I went, the Department of Psychology got a research grant, and the person in charge of the grant, my mentor, was a gentleman with spina bifida, and he was a total quadriplegic, uh, but he had a master's degree and very intelligent, and I would be his eyes and ears. And so our project was, in those days, before computers and everything, I would go into the homes of of people and and deliver a nonverbal psychological test to see if they were candidates for this project. And one of the turning points in my life was I had to interview uh, a, a, a a man my age who was in an iron lung from polio. And for those of you old enough to remember what iron lung and the scare that kids in the summertime going to camp and everything, polio before the vaccine. And so I had to interview this person um, upside down in this iron lung. And it just the, through the whole interview with him and working with him, it's this could have been me. And so I just decided at that time, I knew I wanted to go into dentistry. And at that time, if you wanted anything to do with special needs, you only route that you could go was pediatric dentistry. Uh, and so that's how I started my career. But I also had a neighbor who had a child with cerebral palsy, and I know, remember them growing up, had them telling me that nobody would, they would make them come after hours because they didn't want anybody in the waiting room. They didn't want them in the waiting room. And look at dentistry today. You know, dentistry is, um, every, nobody, nobody likes going to the dentist for sure. Nobody likes getting the bills from the dentist for sure. But um, the practices are Muzak. They're, everybody's a cosmetic dentist. Uh, everybody, it's a dental spa. Nobody wants to hear the, you know, the behavior, um, and, and the, um, yeah, or look at people that are different. So I've always my decision was to have an inclusive practice. As you are, as a parent or caregiver, if you didn't like it being in the waiting room with that, uh, in that environment, then there are plenty of other people that could. They could treat you. So I can interrupt to say that I know personally people who would drive hundreds of miles to be treated by you because they trusted nobody else. And you've been had a remark. You you are continuing to have a remarkable career to changing the world. And I want to thank you. Thank you again for joining us, Dr. Stephen Perlman. Um, is an extraordinary friend professional and uh, game changer and you can find more information about his work in the show description we want to thank peabody tv for providing our wonderful recording space and all things disability is made possible through the financial support of the changing lives fund which was created through a generous gift from stephen rosenthal to learn more about the northeast arc and to find past episodes of this podcast please visit any-arc.org.